So if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, the first Sunday in December, we started our Advent sermon series, and the series was titled Peace on Earth. And if you're with us, you know that we've been kind of journeying through the scriptures to kind of listen to the story um, about peace on earth. And uh, if you remember, if you hear that first day, we quoted... Um, um, U2 and their lead singer Bono, one of the songs that he wrote called Peace on Earth, and he, where he sarcastically said, where's this peace? He questioned the reality of peace. If God is supposed to bring peace, then why do we look around, our, why do we look around and we find our world in so much chaos and dysfunction? And it's true. Uh, everything from uh, internationally, uh, there's so much chaos and wars and rumors of wars and what's the next step uh, to, na- to nationally. Um, political chaos. We, we don't even, our leaders lack integrity. Um, and the people of the country are forced to embrace men and women that they can't even trust. And we feel a, even in, here in the United States, there's a rumbling um, racial tensions, um, so on and so forth. And for some of us, there's family tension. Um, there's, we've, we're, we are the products of a divorce. Uh, we're fighting with one another. Maybe husbands and wives might be in a time of unrest. Um, maybe Christmas and the holiday season is difficult because it's the season where everyone gets together. And maybe that one family member that used to come doesn't come no more because there's tension. Um, and so when we look at our current situation and then we look at the declaration of peace on earth, there's a tension between the two. And so we, we kind of talked about, so what, where, how did peace on earth, where did it come from? Where is it going? Is it ever coming back? Or is there here now? What does God mean when he says peace on earth? And so we were here the first week that we uh, entered into this sermon series. We were in Genesis chapter 3. We started at the beginning where everything started. And uh, we discovered that the disobedience of Adam disconnected mankind from the source of peace. And then the next week, we were in Romans chapter 5 in the New Testament, and there we discovered that even though the disobedience of Adam disconnected us from the source of peace, that the obedience of Jesus reconnected us back to that source of peace. And today, um, although Christ has secured peace for us all, there still remains a serious threat to that peace. And the reality is is that there is an existence of false peace, false hope. This is why we as the church, we try not to necessarily celebrate Christmas the way the culture celebrates it, but we celebrate Christmas the way the Bible tells us Christmas really went. And I think a lot of churches, it's tragic that sometimes we step into the joy and the bliss and the false comforts of the season when the Bible was anything but comfortable during this time. The Christmas is about Christ coming into a dark, chaotic place to deliver mankind. And so sometimes we kind of pander to not just the culture, but to the marketing and the media. The more that we can kind of create a buzz inside of you, make you feel good about yourself, maybe you'll spend some money, right? And, uh, and we can get your money. And so there's this, there really is this strategy that's attacking you and I, it's attacking our children to try to get us to define this season in false ways. And so there's a threat to our peace. And this morning I want to talk about that false peace. Um, 
And so I'm just going to kind of lay out a strategy or a game plan for today's sermon, and then we will jump in. I want to briefly review the life and the ministry of a prophet named Jeremiah. Now, some, of, some, some refer to this prophet as the weeping prophet. Really difficult ministry, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit. But we're going to talk a little bit about the life and ministry of the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to talk about the conditions of Israel when Jeremiah was called to speak to them. And we're going to use the life of Jeremiah and the conditions of Israel to discuss and illustrate the dangers of false peace. And I'll conclude this morning's message um, by sharing with you or discussing with you this morning five forms of false peace that still threaten the body of Christ today. And so we'll conclude with five forms of false peace that still threaten the body of Christ today. And so before I get into the message, um, we're a praying church. So can we pray again and just ask that the Lord's word would be made known. So Heavenly Father, um, Lord, I pray first for myself that you would speak through me, that it would be your words and not my words, that everything that you want uh, to be spoken today would be spoken. So I I do my best to remove myself. And I pray to the hearers of the word that we would prepare our hearts, that our hearts and our minds would be soil, that your word would be seed, and that our hearts and our minds would be good soil so that that seed is planted firmly and deeply and rooted. And so, Lord, I pray that um, we would discover peace uh, internally, that we would discover peace externally, and that uh, we would also hope for a day in which you bring uh, a total peace finally for all of us um, in this world. And so uh, we bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I was telling you, Jeremiah's life and call were difficult. He was raised in a small town, so he was kind of a small town boy. And God called him to be a prophet, but not just to Israel, but to the nations. Can you imagine you're raised in a small town? You've probably never even been outside of a small town. I don't know if anyone here is from kind of a small town, but uh, that's kind of all you know. And you walk outside of those boundaries of that small town, and all of a sudden the world becomes a bigger place. Well, for Jeremiah, he was raised in a small town, and yet God called him to speak to his nation. And how humbling and how, uh, fear, how scary that must have been. But uh, not only to his nation, God called him to be a prophet to the nations, to the entire world. And if that wasn't crazy enough, uh, Jeremiah was called at 18 years old. <laughs> So, you know, you, you heard of, you know, you have a, we have a teen, you know, he was a teen prophet, you know. And so I, I, I'm going to date myself, but I remember when there was a show called Teen Wolf. Anybody remember watching Teen Wolf? I don't know why. This really doesn't really have anything to do with the message. But every time I thought about teen prophet, I thought about teen wolf. So I don't know. MTV has all its teens, right? Like teen mom and... Right? All of that stuff, right? And so uh, it, I thought it would be really cool, reality TV series called Teen Profit, right? Maybe we should sell that to somebody and maybe we can like, okay? All right, maybe not. Um, but he's literally a teen prophet. And so that kind of sounds cool, kind of sounds glamorous. Small town, village boy called at 18 years old to prophesy to his nation and to the nations. But that's about as cool as it gets because the rest of the story for Jeremiah is extremely troublesome. What do I mean by that? Uh, at certain points in, in his life, his hometown like hated on him. They hated him so much that they actually, people in his hometown, officials in his own city plotted to kill him. Thank you. He was beaten. 
At times, he was put into stocks. He was accused of treason. He was jailed. And he was even thrown into a cistern, which I had to Google that just to figure out what that was. And basically, it's just like a, a, a well, like a hole, like a deep well. So imagine being thrown into a well. Now, um, why did all these things happen to him? All this was because the message God had called him to speak was a message of correction. A message of rebuke and a message of judgment. Not only uh, did this message cause Jeremiah persecution personally, but hear me out. In his 40 years of ministry, and he ministered faithfully, he only had two converts. So let me put that into perspective. A church planter's worst nightmare. Okay, here's a church planter's worst nightmare, okay? So when Jamila and I were planting a church, your first thought is, is anybody going to believe in this crazy dream with us? Like, we feel like God is calling us to something great, right? Who's going to believe it with us? So you're, you, the, the church planter's nightmare is that you would wake up on a Sunday morning, you'd come here, and there'd be three people, and it's like me, Jamila, and P3. You know what I mean? It's like my family. <laughs> and so, so, you know, American Christianity sometimes, hear me out. I don't want to beat Americans up, but this is an area we struggle with. American leadership sometimes uh, we put so much emphasis on fame and so much emphasis on popularity to the point where if we have a ministry and no one's showing up, we believe we're a failure, right? And, 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 and you know, we, we follow our, all our favorite, you know, and, and again, you, sometimes the American church and the world, there's no difference, and, you know, and we have a social media, and I have nothing against it. I love it. But we put up all these grand stories, and don't take that picture. There's not a lot of people there. You know what I mean? Like, take that picture. You know what I mean? Like, no one takes a picture of the service with 20 people. It's like 220. Take that picture today, right? And so we all want to post up, and we do this with our own lives. We all want to post up this image of success. Where did that even come from? Like, what is success? And where did you even derive that idea of success from? And I would say that we have a competition in our culture, whether we're going to define success based off of scripture or define success based off of what the world is projecting to us. And usually success is more, much, more cars, more money, more uh, this and more that. And for churches, sometimes it's more people. And so would you look at the prophet Jeremiah and look at him and say, he only had two converts. He must not have been successful. Or would you look at a man of faith like him and said, you know, he faithfully spoke the word of God when it was unpopular to do so. And so success was not measured by who responded, but was he faithful to the word that God had given him? That's success. And I feel, I feel, uh, I feel an urgency on my heart because I feel like there are a lot of ministers that are out there today, a lot of churches that are out there today that will avoid the correction and the rebuking of the word of God because they don't want people to walk away. I'm getting ahead of myself here. But I, I want you to see this. A nation... That is in spiritual decline always is hostile to the word of God. You can always tell a nation is in spiritual decline when it becomes hostile to the word of God. And that's exactly what Israel uh, and Jeremiah were going through. And this is why Israel treated Jeremiah so harshly. But here's the, here's the deal. By the time Jeremiah dies at his death, Jerusalem would be destroyed and her inhabitants would be taken captive to Babylon. 
All this occurred because the people of God chose to listen to the voice, ready, of false prophets rather than the voice of faithful prophets. Are you with me today? So everybody stay with me. Here's the picture. Today we're talking about false peace. And we're going to use Jeremiah's life to illustrate five forms of false peace that threaten the body of Christ today. You with me? So let me, let me say this again because it's a really important launching point. All this occurred because the people of God chose to listen to the voice of false prophets rather than the voice of faithful prophets. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to use two chapters and three verses to help tell the story. Today's a little bit of a topical message, and so stay with me, but I'll do my best to enlighten you in the context of the scripture. But we're going to use two chapters in the book of Jeremiah. So if you want to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 5, we're going to literally be in chapter 5, verse 1. And then we're going to skip over to Jeremiah chapter 6, and we're literally going to be in two verses, chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. If you have your Bibles, you can go there. If not... We'll have it up here for you guys. So Jeremiah chapter 5. So two chapters and three verses kind of set the stage and tell the story for us this morning. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 5. And again, if you're a regular attender of this church, you'll know I don't typically like to just pick, cherry pick verses. Um, but you'll, hopefully I'll bring this uh, to understanding for you um, as we move forward. But uh, Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 1, it says this. Again, this is Jeremiah's life and ministry uh, during his time uh, prophesying to the nation of Israel. Scripture reads like this, verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. This is the prophet speaking. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man who does justice and seeks truth that I may pardon her. Now let's stop there very quickly. What we have here in chapter 5 is a nation in spiritual decline. God is saying through the prophet of Jeremiah, run through the streets, go forwards, go backwards, upwards, sideways, observe the streets and look around and find a man of integrity. Find me one man of integrity. It's almost like when God spoke to Abraham in Sodom and Gomorrah. You find me one person that's righteous and I'll save the city. And so chapter 5 is a picture of a nation in spiritual decline. Now, further on in chapter 5, and I want you to hear this. We won't go there, but I've kind of put it really quickly. I've kind of put it together. I want you to listen how the Lord describes the men of the nation of Israel. Are you ready? Listen to how the Lord describes the men of the nation of Israel. He says this. They are well-fed, lusty stallions. Wait, it gets even weirder. He says, God is so articulate. He says, the men of the country are well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. I had to YouTube what neighing was. Because, you know, I originally thought when a horse neighs, you know, you know, that's not a neigh. And I'm not a, I'm a city slicker. I'm not a country boy. But neigh is when I, I can't do it. So, and Jamila's like, why don't you just click click the sound by? I was like, babe, that'd be kind of weird, you know, like. But I had to click to hear, so it's the other noise, the high pitch, you know that one, right? Was that that close? All right. Praise God. I didn't even practice that one. But look how the prophet is describing through the Lord. Look how the men are being being described in Israel. Kind of sounds like some of our political leaders, yeah? Well-fed, lusty stallions, each named for their neighbor's wives. He'll also call them, listen, he calls them this, great, rich, fat, and sleek. 
individuals who do not judge with justice the cause of the fatherless and they do not defend the rights of the needy. So you'll see two things here that God is offended with. He's offended with sin and immorality, but he's also offended that the men of the city are not taking care of those that are in need. So the two things that you'll hear this in the Old Testament, God is a God of justice. He's not just, he doesn't just want you to walk in righteousness, but he wants you to take care of the fatherless. Widows and orphans are on the heart of God. The homeless are on the heart of God. The needy are on the heart of God. And he'll judge cities and nations based on their ability to care for those that can't be cared for. Now here in chapter 5, Israel has become a people who've rejected correction and repentance while they've progressed in injustice and immorality. Are you with me? So let's skip over now to the next chapter, chapter 6, and we'll read verse 13 together. And again, this is a continuation of what the Lord is uh, speaking to Jeremiah about Israel. Verse 13 says this, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. Think about unjust gain. This isn't just... um, People are greedy and working a lot and wanting to make more money, but the way that they make the money is unjust. A lot of lying, manipulating, and stealing that's taking place. So everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And then here's the most, here's probably one of the saddest parts. He says this, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. Not only are the citizens in sin, not only are the politicians in sin, but even the men of God are corrupt. Listen to how the Lord describes the prophets and the priests. So prior in chapter 5, I talked about the name men, right? The lusty stallions. Uh, That was God describing the citizens of that country. Now listen to how God will describe the prophets and the priests of this country. Are you ready? He says this. The word is not in them. They prophesy falsely and they rule at their own direction. But But the most telling indictment against them is in chapter 14 and this is where we're really going to get into it he says this they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying peace peace where there is no peace some versions say they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious other versions say they offer they offer superficial treatments for my people's mortal wound he says, they, they, um, they healed the wound of my people lightly. They dressed the wound of my people as though we're not serious. And they offer superficial treatment. So what is this superficial healing that, these, that the man of God is referring to? What is this superficial healing? Let me explain. And to understand what a superficial healing is, you first need to understand the ministry of the prophet in the Old Testament. What is a prophet? And that's a very big buzzword right now. Everyone wants to know, what's a prophet? What do prophets do? Can I be a prophet? Can you be a prophet? Um, and so I want to share with you in the, 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 the call of a prophet in the Old Testament. In Scripture, a prophet was literally the mouthpiece of God. Or basically one who spoke on behalf of God. Now, usually the word of the Lord would come to the prophet through words or pictures, usually in a vision or a dream or some sort of conscious thought while prayer, but it would come to the prophet, God's word, through words or through pictures. But here's the cool thing about a prophet. It would always come through words or pictures, but it would always come out of the mouth. It was always spoken, always spoken. And typically the word of the Lord would either be a word of comfort 
you're doing everything right. Or a word of challenge. Typically, the word of the Lord would either come to the people of God as a word of comfort or a word of challenge. Are you with me? Now, this is really important. Faithful prophets would bring words of both comfort and challenge, while false prophets would only speak words of comfort. Superficial healing occurred when the priests and prophets proclaimed to God's people that everything was okay when it really wasn't. While God was speaking words of correction and rebuke through his faithful prophet, false prophets were only telling people what they wanted to hear. This brings us to another key point. False prophets only appear when God's people seek after leaders who will enable them in their sin. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 5 verse 31. Scripture says this, prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule at their direction and my people love it that way. They love to have it so. I want you guys to hear this. Because we have a sin nature, because man is, has a nature that's full of sin, and, and biblical history will show that you and I, and I include myself, we have a tendency to say everything is okay when it's really not. We also have a, t- a tendency to avoid the light when it wants to shine in dark places. As a result, if we're not careful, hear me out here, guys. As a result, if you and I are not careful, we'll empower leaders in our lives who will tell us what we want to hear rather than tell us the words of the Lord. Now, some of you might say, but that's the Old Testament, Pastor Phil. Well, this wasn't just an Old Testament prophet. I want you to listen to the advice the Apostle Paul gave to a young church planter. I like to think it was myself, but his name was Timothy, but I still love to hear it today. And this is what Apostle Paul tells a young church planter in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. It reads like this. The Apostle Paul telling the church planter says this. For the time is coming, again, New Testament, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having, and I love this, itching ears. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now I want you to follow the apostles' train of thought here. Are you ready? Itching ears reject the truth of faithful teachers. Itching ears reject the truth of faithful teachers and turn to the myths of false teachers. False teachers not only invent their own teachings, but they tell the people what they want to hear. Now notice something. Itching ears empowers false teachers. Those with itching ears are those who wander into myths or search after something new or unusual. Now, I want to give you a quote from a gentleman named Russell Moore. Not Russ Moore, okay? (laughs) Russell Moore. Some of you will get that. Um, And Russell Moore, he's a theologian, and he's the president of Ethics and and Religious Liberty. Um, He's the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. He says this. This one hit me right between the eyes. American, um, American evangelism, evangelicalism is old and sick and weak, and we don't even know it. He made this comment about one week ago today. He said, American evangelicalism is old and sick and weak, 
and we don't even know it. Now, here's the definition of itchy ears. Listen to what he says. We are bored by what the Bible reveals as mysterious and glorious and red in the face about what hardly matters in the broad sweep of eternity. We are bored by what the Bible reveals as mysterious and glorious and red in the face about what hardly matters in the broad sweep of eternity. So following Paul's train of thought in the New Testament, I'd like to give some advice to you leaders and listeners in the room. And you will be a leader and listener at some point in your life, so this advice is for you, period. But to the listeners, hear me out. What starts as itchy ears will end up as wandering into myths. Let me explain. When God's word, God's timing, or God's answer doesn't please your passions, a temptation will arise to go on a search for an answer that best pleases your flesh. Let me prepare you now. Here we go. There will come a time when the word of the Lord will have to hurt you before it heals you. And that is the point in where many people stop walking with Jesus. Because in the beginning it felt so good, but when he began to hurt you, you began to walk away because pain, I'm going to run away from pain because I'm looking for superficial healing. I just want to feel what? Good. There will come a time where the word of the Lord will hurt you so that it can heal you. The question is this, when that time comes, will you endure sound doctrine or will you wander off in search of superficial healing? Now here's my warning to you. Be careful what teachers and mentors you accumulate for yourself in these times. Sometimes when our flesh is strong, we purposely neglect those leaders and friends in our lives that will correct and rebuke us. And instead, we'll partner with those friends in our lives that will encourage us in our sin. Sometimes when the word of the Lord is starting to correct you and rebuke you and maybe hurt you a little bit, sometimes what we'll do is we'll distance ourselves from those leaders in our lives that are, are, that are bringing the word of the Lord, and we'll begin to partner with those friends in our lives that will encourage us in our sin. Now, to the leaders, so that was to the listeners, to the leaders, I want you to hear this. The applause and approval of man can lead to the compromising of God's word. How many times has the Lord told you to give a word, but because you didn't want to offend somebody, you didn't give it? Why? Because you were more concerned about them liking you, or you were more concerned about your rejection than you were about God's truth. And so instead of telling them like it is, you were like, well, it's going to be okay. That would be a superficial healing. You with me? I know it's a little rough. So for leaders, the applause and approval of man can lead to compromising the word of God. I want you to listen to Paul's advice in the first verse of that same chapter to the church planter. Listen to what Paul tells the church planter. And I, I sit down and I, I feel like the apostle Paul is speaking to me. This, as a church planter and as a pastor, this is one of my biggest burdens in this church. He says this, I charge you in the presence of God in Jesus Christ. It's like Paul saying, look, this is for real. 
I mean, anything Paul says, this is for real, but he's like adding extra cheese on it. He's like, I'm telling you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who's the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, here it is. He tells Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. He says, there's going to be times where people are going to raise up and they're going to accumulate for themselves false teachers to tell them things that they want to hear. But he says, you are not going to be a teacher that's going to change the message because the people want to hear something that will please their flesh. He says, you're going to preach the word, and in season and out of season, you are going to reprove, rebuke, and exhort, but be patient. (laughs) Right, so it's almost, you know, he's not giving leaders the license to be abusive. There are some abusive leaders, like, I'm telling you the word of the Lord. You are a sinner, you ugly sinner, right? And you're like, wait, I don't feel God in this. You know, like, so, like, there is a way to abuse that. So that's why Paul says, you know, I want you to exhort, rebuke, but do it in patience. So as leaders and influencers, we all must continually decide what matters most. You guys hear me? As leaders and as listeners, and as leaders and as influencers, we all must decide continually Not just one time. This is a continual decision. Every time I plan for a sermon on Sunday, I must always make a new decision. And that that decision is this. Who matters more, the, the, the court of popular opinion or the judge that sits in the throne? Whose word matters most? And as a listener, what word are you going to listen to? Are you going to listen to the word of public opinion or are you going to listen to the word of God? Now, this leads us into what I believe are five forms of false peace that are threatening the body of Christ today. And so we're going to go through these five forms, and then we'll finish this morning's message. But the first one is this, and if you're taking notes, um, definitely we can make the notes even available to you. But the first one is this. The first form of false peace, I'm calling, it's called false comfort. Now, you're not going to find this anywhere in Scripture. I'm calling it this, okay? So I just want to let you know this is my imperfect way of titling these things. But the first form of false peace that I believe is threatening the body of Christ today is called false comfort. This comfort refers to those who search for peace in the pleasures of this world. For some, it's the accumulation of stuff. The more things I have, the happier I am. I don't know if you've ever just kind of been scrolling through, you know, whether it's uh, Facebook or Instagram or whatever else your kids do these days. You're just kind of scrolling through, you know, just watching videos. You ever get caught, like, watching a funny video and you just scroll, and you're just watching them all, and then you end up, you're like, oh, man, I'm an addict. I need to stop, right? But uh, you ever come across, and then they always have these. It's like this guy, you know, he's, got, he's like a buff, and there's, like, a mansion in the background, these cars, and, like, you press play. He's like, hey, if you're having a terrible life, you know, and I was like you, but now i got 36 Lamborghinis and a mansion and blah, 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 and, you know, and I just started advertising on the Internet, right? And so I want to say this, is that as funny as it, foolish as it is, uh, what that is is that's a, a marketing ploy that's, that's trying to get you to, trying to bring you into and sell you a dream. Now, I'm not mad at selling dreams like I get I understand that to a certain degree but I also want you to know to be careful because what's happening is is that these advertisers and marketers are kind of attacking that need inside of you to find comfort in the accumulation of things are you with me I think I said this earlier in Genesis chapter 1 God created us to have dominion over things but when sin came in things started to have dominion over us 
Well, what do I mean by that? For some, um, we find happiness in buying things we can't afford to impress people we don't know. Or some of us, we buy things we can't afford to impress people we don't even like. We've become enslaved to fine dining, to fashion, just to impress. Um, Our credit cards become our taskmasters. It's not funny. I mean, I know we're live, but it's not funny because there are some people, your credit cards are your taskmasters. You cannot do things that you would love to do for your family, things that you would love to do for God, because you are enslaved to somebody else. Others, we empower traveling and vacationing and endless amounts of Netflix and entertainment to fill our schedules while at the same time neglecting taking care of our souls. If I were to just take a measurement of your prayer life and your devotion with Christ and your entertainment and your travel and your spending, I wonder where the balance would go. And again, I'm not, you're like, whoa, what are you asking me to do? You know, I'm not saying that you need to now pray 24 hours a day, but the imbalance is terrible. I was sitting with a leader, a pastor, and we were having a conversation and and he looked at me, and he goes, you know, I haven't prayed in over a year. I'm praying over a year. And, I, you know, and it's almost like, wait, what, a pastor? But you know what? What about you? You are man of God. You are the pastors of your home. And, it, and the way you look at a pastor that wouldn't pray, and you would say, that's an unfit shepherd for this church. What about you fathers and you husbands in here that aren't praying? What, are you, what kind of spiritual decline are you leading your households into? But he, he looked at me and said, I haven't prayed. He's like, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking about church planting. And he told me, he goes, and I think church planting might help me pray more. And I was just like, well, brother, superficially, like, don't do it. No, nah, I don't think you should church plant. I think you should pray. But there's just an uneven reality in our devotion time. And I look at some of my leaders today. We sit down and we have conversations. And the first question I try to ask is, how are you? How's your prayer time? How's your prayer time? You know, and I, you know, I understand it gets a little busy. But this has got to be priority in our lives. So we empower traveling, vacationing, and endless amounts of entertainment to fill our schedules while at the same time neglect to shepherd our souls. Some even bury themselves in work. Any workaholics in here, you don't have to raise your hand, but I, I, I can have a tendency there, right? And I want you to know that God created man to work. So there is this desire to work, but sin came in and work begins to dominate. And work begins to take us away from things. It takes our minds off things. Some ladies in here too as well. You do things around the house constantly, trying to take your mind off of stuff. You don't want to sit still with your family. You constantly, it's very difficult. There's too much going on. You're, it's false sense of peace. And so we bury ourselves in work and endless projects around the house, hoping to find deeper meaning, ready, in position and accomplishment. False comforts has many saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Secondly, a second form of false peace, I call false spirituality. Let me explain what that means. 
This comfort refers to those in our generation who search for meaning and fulfillment beyond our physical realm. Often they define themselves as spiritual but not religious. You ever said that? You might even say it. I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. They often define themselves as spiritual but not religious, and they celebrate a belief that declares all roads lead to God. All paths lead to God. They accumulate for themselves spiritual philosophy, philosophies by listening to gurus who cherry-pick from sacred texts of different religions all around the world to create this hodgepodge of coolness. You're enlightened now. And now it's not even gurus. You become your own guru. You do your own reading. You do your own Google search. God knows what we're searching these days. And we begin to cherry-pick all those things. And create our own bondage and our own strongholds and our own philosophies. In the end, you know what's happening? We're creating the perfect flesh feeding system. You guys want to hear what the perfect flesh feeding system is? Here it is. Happiness without righteousness. Pleasure without accountability. And they've wandered and they've wandered into looking for All the benefits of spirituality with none of the holiness of Christianity. When someone says, I'm spiritual but not religious most of the time, what they're saying is, I want all the benefits of spirituality, but I don't want the holiness. Oh, Christianity is cool. All the parts that don't tell me to live differently. Right? False spirituality has many saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Number three, the third form of false peace I call false religion. Now, this comfort is tricky because there are people that are sitting in our churches every day that have this in them. It's tricky because this group of people condemns false spirituality. They condemn the over-pursuing of, of worldly desires. They look sound and talk as if they know what they're doing. Yet Paul refers to this group as having an appearance of godliness but denying its power. These are those who think they can earn God's grace through good behavior. They put an outward performance on so that all can see how righteous they are. They brag about their giving. They're loud and proud about their lifestyle. And not only are they loud and proud to brag about how godly they are, but they turn their noses up at sinners. Look at her. What is she wearing? Look at him. He can't even do this right. And they smell everyone else's poo-poo but not their own. (laughs) You think that's bad. You should look at Jeremiah's illustrated sermons. God actually has him cover himself in it. Just to prove a point. Here it is. Ready? This is what false religious people do. They deny the freedoms of Christ. And place themselves in bondage by placing laws where God has not placed laws and putting rules and standards where God has not put rules and standards. Your rules and your laws are not only putting a yoke of bondage on you, but you're putting a yoke of bondage on your children. There are some children that are born and raised in church that want nothing to do with Christianity because you have put so many rules and laws that God has not said. And you've done it because there's a place you want them to live right, but you become manipulating and controlling. And you've communicated to them that there's no freedom in Christ. 
And Paul says, I spent my entire life speaking to two different types of false religions. Number one, there's Gnosticism that's coming into the church and it's false spirituality. But number two is, I'm fighting with the Judaizers and those that want to come in and put the people of God into the bondage of laws. Listen to what Jesus says about these people. Brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs. Jesus tells them, hypocrites, you travel land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child as hell as you are. Jesus just reserved the hardest punches for those religious folks. The opposite of false spirituality... False religion is false religion, and it creates, you ready? It creates a system of judgment, control, and manipulation, all revolving around the belief that you can somehow earn God's favor. In the end, they rest in their works rather than in the work of Christ, and they declare peace, peace, where there is no peace. Now, I want to conclude this morning's message. Um, with our two final forms of false peace. Um, and these forms aren't systems, but these are actually people. And our two final forms of false peace are this, false teachers and false converts. False teachers and false converts. I don't know the name of the author, but one author writes, listen to this, Satan is the great counterfeiter. He has false gospel preached by false ministers producing false Christians. Satan plants counterfeits wherever God plants true believers. I'm going to read that again because this is really scary, especially at this end. He says this, Satan is the counterfeiter. He has a false gospel preached by false ministers producing false Christians. Now listen to this. And he plants counterfeits wherever God plants true believers. Oh. The fourth form of false peace is the reality of false prophets, false teachers today. We must be careful, church. You must be careful. I must be careful. We must be careful because false teachers are everywhere. From the most notorious cult leaders to the most charismatic televangelists, too many Christians are easily fooled into embracing heretical ideas about Christ. Now, there's three things I want us to consider when it comes to false teachers. Number one, consider the source. What do I mean by that? Where did this message come from? Ask yourself. Where did this message come from? False teachers exploit you with stories they made up, relying on their imagination and their creativity. Faithful teachers are faithful to the scripture. Is the main source of the message based out of scripture or is it based off of someone's experience, imagination, or dream? Consider the source. You know, Paul tells Timothy, he tells Timothy, he says, there's going to come a time where people with itchy ears are going to accumulate for themselves false teachers that will lead them astray and they'll wander into myths he says there's going to come a time where they're going to, they're going to uh, remove themselves from, he says, sound doctrine. Now, I, I want to go off real quick subject, real quick here. Not off subject, but I want to go off the notes real quick here. I looked at the Greek word. The two things that stuck, up, stuck out to me was sound and myth. 
Sound and myth. Hear me out here. Sound doctrine. The Greek word for sound is the same word that we get in the English for hygiene. Hygiene. What does that mean? So when Paul says sound doctrine, this is what he's saying. Well, when you think about hygiene, you're thinking about holistic health. Everything is healthy. But here's the cool thing about hygiene. Hygiene is not just um, a way to be preventative. I'm sorry, hygiene is not just to, um, hygiene is not just to keep yourself healthy now, but it's to keep yourself healthy later. It's preventative. So what sound doctrine does when you are trained in it, when you are, when you are studied in sound doctrine, when you have solid biblical foundation is not only does it cause you to grow right now, but it also causes you to fight against those diseases that will come from the outside. You ever been in a sermon? You ever been in a situation where your heart just something started, it just didn't feel right? The words somebody gave you didn't feel right. Somebody's preaching a message that didn't feel right. There's something off about it. The word myth is interesting as well in the Greek, but here's the thing that got me the most. It's a fabrication. A fable, a story, but it's a fabrication. You know what it's saying is? There are men who are going to take the word of God and begin to look at it and begin to just develop their own ideas. And they're going to follow rabbit trails and go further and further and further away. And all in the name of trying to find something new. And you know what? I've seen it. I've, I've, I've ministered. I've been around before here. I've ministered in different places. I minister with our contemporaries. And we, sometimes we get into that temptation of wanting man's approval. And pastors and preachers will want your hand claps and your amens. And sometimes the most amens we get in churches are saying things in scriptures. Like, oh, man, I've never heard that before. Now, I get it. Maybe someone's explaining it in a different way. But what I mean is, oh, that's so new. Hey, man, that was great. Wow, whoa, whoa. You say all these new things, and you're, you're trying to create new things. And before you know it, instead of using cultural context, looking at the Greek, and I'm not saying you've got to be a scholar, but I'm saying instead of just taking a look at the history of what God was saying to who he was saying it to, you begin to just go off in your own imagination. And men of God begin to, and women of God begin to minister all of these created ideas. Before you know it, you're on a rabbit trail. You don't know where God's word started and where it ends. Are you with me? Consider the source. I'm going to go quickly here. Number two, consider the subject. I love this. If the source says, where did the message come from? The subject says, who was the message about? For the faithful teacher, Jesus Christ is central. For the false teacher, Jesus is in the margins. Little Jesus sprinkled in. Let me ask you a question. If you're listening to a message, are you the hero? Are you the main character of the story? Is this your story? Is it for your glory? Is it all about you or about Jesus Christ? I'm so tired of pastors and preachers preaching messages, and I call it motivational speaking. Christianity and preaching is just motivational speaking. And you go in there and you feel good about yourself. I'm ready to conquer. I'm ready to get up. I'm ready to do all these things. I'm ready to get this and that. And we love all these teachers that teach all these things. Ten ways to do this about our lives and blah, blah, blah. Before you know it, you listen to a whole sermon. Christ wasn't central. And you walked out of there saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Because you will never be the hero. It will never be your story. It will never be about your glory. It's about the glory of Christ. He's the hero. It's his story. It's his glory. And if we would be secondary and not primary, we'd be healed. Peace, peace, where there is no peace. For the false Christian, motivational speaking should never replace Christian biblical preaching. 
For the false teacher, Christ is not essential to the message. You can take Christ out of it and the message doesn't fall apart. For the false teacher, Christ is not essential to the message. For the faithful teacher, Christ is the message. He is the message. He's the embodiment of the message. He is the example. He is the hero. He is the winner. He is the ultimate succeeder. Are you understanding? For the faithful preacher and teacher, Christ is the message. Finally, in this section, consider the motivation. What drives the teacher? Is it greed or compassion? Is it for notoriety and fame? I just want to get up there and speak. I I love it when people just, man, they just love it how I feel. Is it for notoriety? Is it for fame? Or is it for the glory of God? Does the the ministry give to the poor more than it takes from the poor? Sometimes we see these these televangelist preachers sending money, 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 you have money this, money that, financial blessing, blah, 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 financial money, money. Turn that off. They're everywhere. And if you send money now, you'll get this anointed tissue. Send money now, you'll get an anointed tissue. Some of you are like, oh, shoot, I got one. Hey, I'm telling you now. There's no, it's no. There's nothing in there. Send money now if you give us a small donation. And you know who usually, it's the minorities that are picked on the most and they give the most money. You know, the poor are getting poor. And you have these so-called men of God traveling the world in their fancy cars, fancy jets, mansions. Look, I'm not advocating that, you know, as men of God, we should be poor, broken, homeless. Because <laughs> that's, I don't, that's not what I signed up for. If God called me to do that, I would. But here's what I'm saying is these outlandish, luxurious, over the top, this is my lifestyle. Well, at the same time, I'm telling you to send a donation of whatever you can. And I'll send you an anointed tissue from somewhere in Israel that I prayed over personally. Are you guys with me? Consider the motivation. Finally, the fifth one, and I I know I've been spending some time. This is really something that's big on my heart. If you just give me a little bit more, I promise we won't be too much longer. But the fifth and final form of false peace is a false convert. Individuals who incorrectly assume that they're eternally secure with Christ because they said a prayer. Because you raised your hand and you, you repeat after me and you said a prayer. You notice we don't do that too often. And some of you might be offended by that. How come they don't say the prayer? And I get it. And there, we do it sometimes. There's a beautiful thing about it. We believe you're sincere with your heart. But I do not want to communicate to you that saying a prayer saved your soul. And that you're somehow eternally secure because you raised your hand in an emotional moment. And you didn't take into consideration what Christ was really calling you to. And who he really is. Are you with me? Three things to consider when it comes to false converts. Number one, consider the appeal. Why do you listen? The false convert will overemphasize the need for the message to make them feel good. While the true convert will focus less on how they feel and more on what's being produced. I was reading an article and the article says sometimes... We love the minister because they're so funny and so charismatic and make so much sense. But what they were saying was not the word of God. And we hate the minister because they're so boring and they're so long and they're so dry. But they were faithfully speaking the truth. Wow. We're so ficky. We like our preachers like we like our comedians on the HBO special. That's how we choose our churches. Consider the appeal. Why am I listening to this? 
How did it, how, not did how did the message make me feel, but what did it do inside of me? What is it producing? This leads us to consider our second consideration. Consider the fruit in your life. Look at the fruit that's growing off of your tree. What's being produced in you? The true believer pursues goodness, self-control, kindness, godliness, and brotherly love and forgiveness. The false convert continues in arrogance and slander and lust and greed. The true convert is growing in holiness, doing their best to escape the corruption of sin. While the false convert is continually being mastered by sin. And don't get me wrong, there's a time where you you go through battles and you fall. I'm not referring to that. All of us have sinned. All of us will continue to sin until the day that we're delivered from this flesh. I'm not talking about those of you that are going through a battle right now and you're fighting and you hate it. You're like, you're like Paul, wicked man that I am. I try to do good. Man. But I'm talking about those that just, you're embracing your sin. And you know what? You're not, you're not growing in righteousness. You're not growing in justification. You don't feel a progression, the corruption of sin. You're, you're just still staying in the same place over and over again. I would say consider whether, the, whether you have truly put your face in Christ. Consider. Are you with me? Finally, consider the end. Oh, consider the end. Consider the appeal. Consider the fruit. But consider the end. Where does this message ultimately lead you? The true believer. True believer is led. It's here in this question. We come to one of the most disturbing facts of them all. The true believer will receive a rich welcome into eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. While a false convert will experience a swift destruction in hell. Now it's in this, um, where I as a pastor, I fear the most. I want you to consider that false conversion gives you a false sense of security. And a false sense of security allows you to walk your life thinking that everything is okay. Saying what? Peace, peace, where there is no peace. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Can I just read this to you and then we'll pray? Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. This is the parable of the weeds. Please hear me out before you leave this morning. Some of you are thinking, man, this is definitely not a Christmas message. It is. Please hear me out. Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, the parable of the weeds. This is Jesus speaking a parable, and this is what he says. He put another parable before them, saying... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Look, verse 28. But he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you uproot the wheat along with them. Verse 30. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles so that they can be burned but gather the wheat into my barn. 
I don't know, the implications of that verse is interesting. I want you to know that the sower is Jesus. I want you to know that the field is the church. And I want you to know that in every church, there will be weeds and there will be wheat. And the question is, do we uproot the weeds while the church is growing? And the answer is, no, you don't. You know what he says? He says, we will uproot the weeds on the day of the harvest. The harvest refers to the judgment of Christ when he comes back for his church. This means, hear me out, this means that in every church, there is what we see and what we don't see. What we see are believers, what we don't see is weeds. And that means that at every church, wherever God puts a church, the enemy will also try to sow in false converts and false teachers. That scares me. That brings the fear of God inside of me. It caused me to look at my life and not fall into a place of more works. God, what do I do? How do I get better? Because that's how you all think, right? Gosh, i got to stop sinning. But it just caused me to lay at the feet of Jesus. Say, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me, Jesus. I can't do this. I've tried it on my own. I put it in my own hands. It doesn't work. You need to come in. You have my life. You have my family. You take control of my, my decisions. And you take control. And even if I fall, may I fall into you. My fault, not away from the cross, but when I do fall, my fall into the cross. I don't want to be a weed. I don't want to go and stand before the Lord on that day. And it turns out I was a false convert. And all this time I was growing right alongside with those that were weak. 